This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes violence, animal cruelty, child endangerment, and some references to suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Stephen's fingers stung with cold as he held down the shutter release button on his camera. In the summer, it would be nearly pitch black at this time of night. But the surrounding snow cast the riverbed beautifully in the reflected moonlight. A dreamlike look that Stephen was hoping to capture in long exposure photographs. He counted down from 20. The moment he reached zero, he released the button with a hiss and stuffed his hand back into his pockets. At least the covered bridge provided some shelter from the gently falling snow. That was a small mercy. A relative newcomer to Vermont, Stephen had no idea what kind of damage the snow would do if a flake or two landed on his camera lens. And he wasn't keen to find out. He took out a cigarette. These midnight photo walks were the only chance he ever got to indulge this particular vice. The long walk back to his cigarette-free house would give him plenty of time to extinguish the smell with a breath mint. The tiny flame briefly illuminated the cavernous bridge around him. Wooden slats fit neatly together into a tunnel of sorts, trusses crisscrossing along the walls. As the match died down, his eyes readjusted to the moonlight. The shadows in the covered bridge were much deeper than the pale blue snow on either end. He could see nothing inside past the faint orange glow of his cigarette. Nothing but the silhouette of a woman at the other end of the bridge. Stephen blinked and rubbed his eyes, removing the image. It was just a spotted vision from the flare of the match. He was alone here, alone in the peaceful night. But the night no longer felt peaceful, and his camera was making a sound unlike anything he'd heard before. With trembling hands, he lit another match and inspected the camera. Three parallel scratches ran across the lens, like some creature had scraped its claws along the glass. Or fingernails. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Emily's Bridge in Stowe, Vermont, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Built in 1844 over Stowe, Vermont's Gold Brook, Emily's Bridge is a deceptively simple structure. It is 48 and a half feet long and 17 feet wide, walled in on all sides by wooden beams, which have since been reinforced with steel. Looked at from a distance, it has the appearance of a wooden shack suspended over the shallow creek bed. This quaint historical relic is an early example of a Howe Truss Bridge, a design that would become increasingly popular in the latter half of the 19th century. However, if you ask any local, they will tell you that the bridge is famous for more than just its architectural significance. For such a relatively small piece of road, just under 825 square feet in area, Stowe Hollow Bridge is shrouded in legend, a story of heartbreak and death, one that left behind a permanent resident. Emma felt like she was going to be sick. The carriage bumped and rattled dreadfully as it made its way through the trees. She didn't understand how big city folk could get used to this kind of transport. It was like being in a boat on stormy seas without the benefit of fresh sea air. She leaned her head out the window and called up to the driver, loudly asking if he could possibly slow the horses down. He gave no indication that he heard her and she slumped sullenly back into the coach. He worked for her father, so he didn't have to obey her commands. Then, without any warning, they ground sharply to a halt, causing her stomach to turn over again. Equally relieved and annoyed, Emma stepped out of the coach and retched onto the dirt. The clueless driver leaned over and gently reminded her that they didn't have far to go. Her father had insisted they get there as soon as possible, she couldn't be late for her own wedding. Emma nodded, waving off the man's concern. She would be ready to go in a moment. She just needed a moment to get her bearings. Her fiance, Reason Price, was everything she could ever hope for in a husband. He was handsome, strong, and not too much older than herself, and had several promising business prospects. He was a man with a future. So why did she feel so uncomfortable at the thought of marrying him? The answer came to her without much effort. A pair of cold black eyes looming in the doorway whenever she went to visit Reason's house. Arched eyebrows and a mouth that always seemed to be holding back a sneer. His mother. Elvira Price had never approved of Emma. She did not give an explanation why. Perhaps she wanted reason to marry some Boston-bred socialite, not a humble farm girl from just outside Wolcott. Elvira and Emma had fought a war of attrition over Reason's heart, and Emma had emerged victorious. She dreaded seeing the defeated Elvira on Reason's side of the aisle. A gust of cold wind bit through Emma's wedding dress. She should not tarry any longer. As she stepped back into the coach, Something caught her eye. A covered bridge down one fork in the road, its yawning mouth wide open, 
as if ready to devour any rider who passed through it. With a shiver, she closed the carriage door. Sooner than she expected, the trees parted to reveal a wooden church. Her family and friends gathered before it, awaiting her arrival. Emma felt tears of joy welling in her eyes. She had more support than just reason. Her whole family would be there to stand against Elvira's horrible, judgmental gaze. The carriage rolled to a smooth stop, and she stepped out, ready to receive their congratulations. But something wasn't right. There were no smiles to greet her. Her father's lined face was red, and his eyes were puffy. She had never seen him cry in her life. Her mother wasn't even there. Her brothers and sisters wore grim expressions, none willing to be the first to speak. A devastating thought surfaced in Emma's mind. Where was Reason's family? She burst into the church, but found it devoid of guests. The only one there was the priest. She met his eyes across the altar. His expression was sad, but knowing like a man watching a tragic play for the fourth or fifth time, knowing how Romeo would react when he enters Juliet's tomb. The priest calmly explained to her that he had received a letter mere minutes ago from the groom's family. The ceremony would not be taking place. Though tears started to flow down her cheeks, Emma's heart did not break. A clear picture of what had happened filled her mind. Elvira had gotten to reason. Either through trickery or force, she had twisted her good-hearted son into breaking off the engagement. Emma burst back out of the church and came face to face with the assembled crowd. She wished that she would see Elvira there, wearing her devil smile. She would love an excuse to make their emotional battle physical. But she was greeted only by her family, full of sympathy and heartfelt condolences. Emma was not looking for sympathy, she wanted revenge. Emma broke away from the crowd and went straight for the carriage. She climbed into the driver's position and seized the reins, ignoring her family's cries of warning. She knew how to get to the Price home from here. She would get reason to marry her one way or another. She whipped the horses a little too hard. The stage set off at a gallop, teetering dangerously to one side, then the other. But Emma did not want to slow down. She feared that if she hesitated even one moment, she would balk and return to her life as an unmarried farmer's daughter. She struck at the horses again, harder. The blow cut across their rippling flanks with a horrible hiss. Flecks of blood hit her face every time she brought the whip back for another strike. Her vision blurred with tears. Passing trees lashed out at her with their twigs and branches, scarring her face. Even as she felt the cut sting against the breeze, she didn't stop. When the covered bridge loomed up in the horizon, she realized that they had to slow down. She pulled on the reins. The horses turned, and for a brief moment, she felt the carriage teeter on its right wheels. Then there was a snap and the coach buckled beneath her, carrying her and the horses down into the riverbed. The world turned upside down. Stone, splinters, and hooves attacked her from all sides. 
When she opened her mouth to scream, it was instantly filled with gravel. When the chaos subsided, her body was aflame with agony. The wreckage of the carriage lay around her, the gentle current of the stream weaving through the shards of wood and broken wheels, carrying the blood of the mangled horses downstream. Emma tried to move, but the slightest effort sent a fresh wave of pain through her body. She could feel the warmth leaving her, as if the stream was siphoning the life out of her tattered muscles. Straining, she looked up toward the road, hoping that someone saw the accident and could call for help. A familiar figure stood by the bridge, wearing a wicked smile. A plaque beside Goldbrook Covered Bridge recounts the story that gave Emily's Bridge its popular nickname. The most popular telling, remembered by some still alive from the 1940s, has a young farmer's daughter, Emily, sometime in the past, perhaps as early as 1849, deserted by the man she loved on the day of their intended marriage. In despair, she took her life at the bridge. Some believe her spirit haunts Emily's Bridge, especially on moonlit nights, waiting for her man to return. This official recounting doesn't specify how Emily's life came to a tragic end. Various tellings have suggested that she hanged herself from the rafters, her carriage crashed into the brook, or she leapt from the bridge on her own. If the third story is true, the ghost hunters have the wrong bridge, at least according to local experts. Members of the Stowe Historical Society have pointed out that the bridge at the intersection of Goldbrook Road and Goldbrook Circle, a mile east of Emily's Bridge, is higher off the ground. It is also not covered, which would make it a far easier bridge to jump off if a grief-stricken bride intended to kill herself. However, the most sinister version of this legend is one that is only vaguely alluded to in online sources, one supposedly gleaned by students using a Ouija board on Emily's Bridge. Through the board, the spirit told these students that her life was taken by her mother-in-law. Up next, we'll see what happens on a midnight drive through Emily's Bridge. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The Goldbrook Covered Bridge, also known as Emily's Bridge, is a place that blurs the line between history and legend. Everyone who lives near Stowe Hollow knows a version of the story. A woman spurned by her husband dies by the bridge. Whether she crashed her carriage, hanged herself, or jumped depends on who's telling the tale. And in all versions of the story, she never leaves.
Calvin turned on the air conditioning as low as it could go and opened up all the driver's side vents. The rush of cold air sent a much-needed shock through his body. It was a method that rarely failed to keep him awake when driving this late at night. When this didn't do the trick, he gave himself sharp slaps on either side of his face. The car grumbled as the rough pavement passed beneath the automobile. No matter how many times he took this route, Calvin could never get used to how the sound set his teeth on edge, even when he was driving through the woods at 1 a.m. Despite being the only vehicle in sight, he kept his headlights at low to save the car battery. Straining to stay focused, his eyes wandered up to the rearview mirror. His passengers didn't seem to notice that their driver was on the verge of passing out. They were too focused on each other. In the mirror, they looked like a writhing mass of limbs and flannel, emanating the occasional sigh of pleasure. Calvin suppressed a groan. Ever since he got his license four months earlier, his older brother Ian had forced him to go on these late-night excursions as driving practice. Ian had picked up his girlfriend Marissa, and soon the driving practice turned into Ian's hookup mobile, with Calvin as third wheel slash chauffeur. Calvin tried his hardest to get out of this role, but to no avail. Ian could be inhumanly persuasive when he wanted to be and he knew all his brother's pressure points. If it was just ferrying the couple to and from movie dates or restaurants, Calvin wouldn't mind as much. He liked having an excuse to get out of the house as much as the next teenager. But having his big brother use the backseat of the car while he was focusing on the road felt... Brood hardly seemed adequate, but it was the only word he could think of. The nose of the car dipped forward, following the slope of a hill. The trees opened up before them to reveal a large boxy shape on the road up ahead, like a barn in the middle of the road. Emily's Bridge. Calvin looked at the mirror again. The two amorous passengers in the back seat didn't see it coming. An idea was forming in Calvin's mind. Now would be the perfect time to show Ian that he shouldn't mistreat his little brother like this. Calvin took a deep breath as they passed into the bridge, and then hit the brakes. The reaction was better than Calvin could ever have hoped for. Neither Ian nor Marissa were wearing seatbelts, and both were immediately launched into the seat in front of them. Just hard enough to shock, but not enough to hurt. Marissa let out a surprised squeal, and Ian immediately started cursing his brother out for not being more careful. Calvin tried to hide his grin as he dimmed the headlights. He turned back to the disheveled lovers with the most genuinely scared expression he could muster. He told them this wasn't his doing. The car had shut off on its own accord. Without any light to see by, Calvin had a picture of his brother's face. The expression he imagined was somewhere between annoyance and wariness. As his eyes adjusted to the dark, he found that he was mostly right. Marissa asked where they were. Calvin, smothering the glee in his voice, told them. Neither gave an immediate audible reaction, but Calvin could swear he heard their breathing quickening in the darkness, accompanied by the faint smell of urine. Did Ian pee himself? Calvin remained stoic on the outside, but internally, he was doubled over laughing. Ian spoke again, voice trembling. 
he asked Calvin to try turning the keys in the ignition again. Giving in to his clearly terrified brother, Calvin did as he asked. The engine rumbled to life. Ian and Marissa sighed in relief. Marissa started poking fun at how she still could feel Ian trembling. Calvin knew just how much his older brother would be bristling at the comment. So far, the revenge ploy could not have gone better. He flicked the lights on. They flared for a minute, revealing a blood-stained shape at the end of the bridge. Calvin screamed, and the headlights went dark again. Calvin asked in a shaky voice who that was. Marissa replied, her voice barely above a whisper. It's Emily. The car jostled around them as if being buffeted from both sides. Ian pleaded with Calvin to just hit the gas, but Marissa shut him down. They couldn't drive blindly into the woods. Ian pointed out that they couldn't just sit there either. Her response was drowned out by a dreadful scraping sound. It reminded Calvin of the steel factory his uncle in Pennsylvania ran. The sound of metal under extreme stress. Like nails on a chalkboard's mean older brother. Gritting his teeth, Calvin pressed on the gas ever so gently. The car lurched and began to roll forward. The metal shrieking only grew louder as they went. The sound stabbing into his ears until he could think of nothing else but getting out. Something heavy landed on the roof of the car, causing both the brothers to yell in alarm. Marissa took off one of her high-heeled pumps and started banging the ceiling in an attempt to dislodge whatever was on the roof. Unable to get the normal headlights to turn on, Calvin switched on the high beams. The world around them was flooded with light, followed by an unearthly scream. The weight lifted from the roof and Marissa laughed in triumph. They were free. Or rather, they would have been, if the tire hadn't caught on the side of the bridge. Calvin swore as the car's hubcap scraped against the wooden beams, grinding to a halt. He hadn't realized they had been listing to the left. Calvin attempted to reverse, but the tires only squealed in response. Some part of their battered junker had caught against the bridge supports, now, mere feet away from the entrance of the impossibly short bridge, they were stuck. Ian shouted something about every man for himself and wriggled out the back window. Calvin watched in horror as his brother ran like crazy toward the end of the bridge, followed by his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. Calvin tried to open the driver's side door, but his side of the car was pressed up against the wall of the bridge. There wasn't enough room for the door to open. With a groan, he crawled into the passenger seat and opened the door on that side. His brother screamed from outside. Calvin scrambled out of the car, barely registering the deep scratches left along the sides. Sweating madly, he ran for the far end of the bridge, where he found Ian lying in the dirt in Marissa's arms. Calvin slowed as he approached. In the reflected light of the high beams, he could see a trail of blood reading from the end of the bridge to where his brother lay prone. Hands trembling, Marissa raised his shirt. Thin red scars ran along his back. Ian moaned in agony, 
whimpering something about how cold her fingernails felt. With a shudder, the car's battery died, and the night swallowed up the entire gruesome scene. Sometimes those who drive through Emily's Bridge between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m. never see the specter. They only hear her. The sounds of rope tightening, dragging feet on the roofs of cars, and a strange echoing voice had been reported in the shelter of the covered bridge. In certain instances, Emily has become notorious for attacking vehicles as they pass through her domain leaving long scratches along the sides of cars, and sometimes even denting the metal. Various individuals even claim that when they get out of their vehicles, she goes for their flesh as well. These stories have led to the bridge getting swarmed with tourists, annoying the people who live nearby. Julia Rogers, who lived adjacent to the bridge in 2013, claimed, the winter was quiet, but we've been calling the police every few weeks in the summer. Resident David Jaqua indicated an increase in street racing through the bridge as well, saying, the cars gun the engine going up that steep hill, turn around in a driveway, sometimes with someone on the hood of the car, and then do a dukes of hazard through the bridge. Police patrols have increased to deter the street racers, but they can't do much to deter obnoxious tourists or ghost hunters, since the bridge is on a public road. In spite of the neighbors' complaints, the bridge remains a focal point of local folklore, and the story has provoked a good deal of controversy among the people of Stowe, even as the hauntings continue. Coming up, we'll reveal the truth about Emily. Now back to the story. The ghostly activity surrounding Emily's Bridge has been a topic of local fascination for decades. But when the interest began varies depending on who you ask. According to the Emily's Bridge website, the first mention of the ghost came in 1968, when a high school student wrote a paper on their experiences on the bridge. This unnamed student claimed they were using a Ouija board on the bridge and was contacted by a spirit that identified itself as Emily. The most popular version of the Emily story says that she supposedly died by suicide or a tragic accident sometime in the 1920s. Historical records have no proof of this incident, but a 1970s enthusiasm for witchcraft and the occult meant that her story soon became a popular legend. Whoever Emily was, she won't let her absence from the history books keep her silent. The frog was gooey in Tabitha's hands, struggling to wriggle free. She giggled at the peculiar feeling as she ran back to show her friends. She had been standing ankle deep in Gold Brook for the last 10 minutes trying to catch some amphibian, and her patience had finally been rewarded. Deborah and Mary sat by the riverbank, backs turned away. Tabitha called out as she approached, galoshes slurping in and out of the mud as she went. Her slippery captive was almost free, and she needed her friends to see her find. It leapt free just as Deborah turned, and the poor girl got a face full of frog. She screamed, flailing her arms in panic. 
Tabitha dissolved into laughter as Mary gingerly reached to pry the creature off of Deborah's face. The frog jumped free before Mary could even touch it, landing with a plop back in the water. Deborah whirled on Tabitha, face still moist with frog slime. Tabitha's laugh subsided as her friend screamed at her. This was not how she wanted to spend a perfectly good summer day. They could be at the movies or the mall, or even going hiking was better than floundering in a creek bed. Tabitha bit her tongue to keep from saying the first thing that came to her mind, that Deborah was too boring for her kind of adventure anyway. She knew if she said something like that, she could never take it back. They may all have been best friends, but this was the last summer before they all went to high school. Those few months would determine if their friendship would survive. Mary coughed politely and said maybe they could do some bird watching. She waved a pair of binoculars for emphasis. Deborah slowly tore her vicious glare away from Mary and wiped her face with the corner of her dress. Tension momentarily diffused, the three girls made their way upstream. Mary unwrapped a Tootsie Roll and popped it into her mouth. Tabitha marveled that even in the wilderness, that girl's sweet tooth would find a way. Tabitha soon found herself fighting with Deborah over who would lead the way. It was like a foot race where one of the unspoken rules was you couldn't seem to be in competition. The occasional long stride was permitted, but a sudden burst of speed would be grounds for disqualification. Mary didn't seem to notice, eyes blissfully wandering from tree to tree, occasionally holding her binoculars up to peer into the woods. Suddenly, she cried out, saying she saw something. When Tabitha asked what kind of bird it was, Mary said she didn't know. It was big and black. Maybe it was a raven? Tabitha said it was probably a crow, ignoring Deborah's eye roll beside her. Mary stammered and said she didn't know, prompting Tabitha to ask for a look. The focus on the binoculars was way off, and by the time Tabitha adjusted it to her own eyes, the bird was gone. All she saw was a wavering tree limb where the bird was sitting a moment before. She sullenly lowered her glasses and kept walking. A moment later, she felt a tap on her shoulder. Mary was offering her a lollipop. Tabitha took it with a smile. Even though their differences were rapidly outnumbering the things they had in common, they could always share sweets. Goldbrook Bridge loomed up ahead of them. Tabitha grinned, her spirit returning. They always loved hanging out inside the covered bridge. The acoustics of the building made every sound echo and sound super creepy. All of them got a kick out of saying really whimsical and goofy things, only for them to reverberate back to them like a voice from the beyond. But as they neared the road, Mary exclaimed again. This time she could see a hawk. She was sure of it. Tabitha seized the binoculars from Mary instantly, pointing them toward the sky. A flash of wings exited the circular frame, like the bird knew it was being watched and wanted to escape notice. Tabitha whirled around, trying to catch up with the bird's motion, and smacked the binoculars into Deborah's head. Deborah screamed in pain and annoyance, ripping the binoculars from Tabitha's hands. Tabitha apologized profusely, but her friend insisted she had done that on purpose. First the frog, now this. Her pranks weren't funny, 
They were mean. Tabitha said she'd do anything to make it up to her. She'd get to choose what they did tomorrow, the movies or the mall, both even. But Deborah was beyond listening. She gave her friend a harsh shove. Tabitha stumbled backward. Her foot slipped over a stone, and she fell head over heels into the riverbed. Tabitha was not a stranger to bad falls. As she rolled toward the water, she was startled, but not scared. Her head went spinning and spinning as it neared the stream. But then a large rock stopped it, and the world burst into formless color around her. The cold stream woke Tabitha. The world around her was dark. The only light coming from the full moon filtering through the trees, and a few spots of comforting man-made light from distant houses. She groaned and forced herself onto her feet. Scrapes covered her exposed limbs, and her feet were soaked inside her boots. She tried not to think about how much of the liquid soaking into her socks was blood. Deborah and Mary were nowhere to be seen. Tabitha prayed they had gone for help, but it was so late. Why weren't they back already? Had they thought she was dead and decided to flee the scene of the crime? Tabitha crawled on her hands and knees back up the road. Her limbs screamed in red-hot protest, but she kept going. The lollipop Mary had given her was stuck uncomfortably to her thigh, but she didn't want to remove it for fear of exposing another open wound to the humid night air. A sound echoed from the covered bridge. Tabitha picked at her waterlogged ears. It sounded like a human voice, but she wasn't quite sure. She called out for help. The noise went silent. She called out again, limping toward the tunnel. There was a shadow against the moonlight. A tourist, probably, or a late-night hiker. The dark closed in around her, moonlight blotted out by the bridge's reinforced rooftop. She called out to the figure again. Getting closer, she saw it was the shape of a woman in a floor-length dress, a strangely old-fashioned one. The woman looked. Tabitha almost jumped at the jerky speed of the gesture. She approached at an angle, more scuttling than walking, drawing away from the moonlight and into the impenetrable shadows. By the time she vanished from view, Tabitha was convinced this wasn't a tourist at all. She had heard stories that the bridge was home to a coven of witches, but Tabitha didn't think witches moved like that. This was something else. Tabitha backed away slowly one step at a time, toward the relative comfort of the moonlit road. The bridge wasn't safe. She had to be free. Suddenly, sharp talons dug into her shoulders, ice-cold spikes piercing her already raw skin. Tabitha screamed in pain and ran with all her might toward the entrance of the bridge. The claws dug deeper as she sprinted. The closer she came to the open road, the worse they hurt. Until, with a final burst of effort, she threw herself on the pavement, palms of her hands stinging as they hit the pale blue ground. A frog hopped lazily past her face, not even pausing to look at her. Then, 
the thing grabbed her ankle. It tore into her Achilles tendon, trying to pull her back into the darkness of the tunnel. She pulled her limb free, rolling onto her back to see what had been attacking her. Looming over her was the dark shadow of a woman, matted hair circling her face like a jagged hurricane. A single sob escaped the figure before it was wiped out of existence by a pair of headlights. Deborah and Mary were at Tabitha's side instantly, sobbing with relief that she was alive. The baritone voice of Mary's dad came from behind them. They had gone for help after all. They had just gotten lost on the way. As they picked her up and carried her back to the car, Tabitha's eyes remained fixed on the covered bridge. She no longer saw it as just a folksy old piece of history. It was a one-lane road into the grave. Ghost stories surrounding Emily's Bridge are largely anecdotal, so the history of the ghost itself is nearly impossible to track. Both skeptics and believers have their own stories about how the legend got started. The most common story among skeptics is one told by Nancy Stead, a columnist for the Stowe Reporter. She claims that she and her friend Hazel Carlson were hanging out in a swimming hole in the 1970s and decided to make up a story to scare the children swimming there. A story which would become the legend of Emily, the broken-hearted bride and her eternal grief. Supernatural enthusiasts in the area maintain that the ghost tale predates Nancy's story, going as far back as the 1930s, but these claims are impossible to verify. The truth of Emily's story remains a mystery. It's most likely that even if the story did happen, her name wasn't actually Emily. Tragedy lurks in every corner of the world, and in a state like Vermont, it's all too easy to imagine that countless people have died anonymous deaths in the woods by Goldbrook. Their last desperate moments witnessed only by the trees. The world is full of Emilies, nameless, faceless, and forgotten. Their grief echoing soundlessly throughout history. And Emily's Bridge is one of the places where we can feel their influence, even if the ghost story that spread through Stowe, Vermont is just a legend. Emily's Bridge has stood for 176 years. In that time, Countless souls have passed through it, in everything from horse-drawn carriages to automobiles. To an outside observer, the bridge seems suspended in time, just like its permanent resident. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>